0: Welcome disciple makers and thank you for joining us. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board Discipleship Team, led by Scott Sullivan, exists to help churches take the next step toward becoming a healthy disciple-making church. We've developed tools to help you, like the Watershed Principle, which identifies 6 main ministries needed to be a healthy church. The Spark Conference, a total church strengthening event that allows you to access keynotes and breakouts all year long, for ongoing training in your ministry area. This year's conference features keynote speakers Fred Luter, Michael Catt, Todd Bulsinger, and Robbie Gallaty, as well as online and in-person regional events. Learn more at www.thesparkconference.com. We also have learning communities across Georgia to sharpen, encourage, and resource leaders personally and professionally. Find a community near you at gabaptist.org discipleship. Don't forget you can find our previous episodes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and your favorite podcast platform. Now let's join today's broadcast or podcast.
1: Welcome to our Georgia Baptist Discipleship family, and man, are you going to be glad you joined us today because we've got Dr. Bryant Wright and Chris Trent with us today. So Dr. Wright is an author, national speaker, one of the most respected leaders in the Southern Baptist convention. He served as senior pastor at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church there in Marietta for 38 years to the day, and he served as the president of Southern Baptist Convention from 2010 to 2012. Bryant founded Wright from the Heart Ministries, which is a radio program that reaches thousands of people worldwide, and I even listen to myself. And currently, Dr. Wright serves as the president of Send Relief for the North American Mission Board. Now, Chris Trent is with us as well. Chris is my buddy. He's here at the Georgia Baptist Mission Board with me, and he served as student pastor in churches in Texas and Georgia. Most recently, he was the student pastor at Johnson Ferry Baptist for 14 years. He's an author, considered this a youth minister's guide to longevity. He is starting a new podcast for youth ministry volunteers. I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit about that. And he is the next gen Catalyst here at the mission board on our church strengthening team. And probably more important than that, he's got the best hair in Georgia. We, <laughs> we love the, the hair of Chris Trent for sure. And and we, it must be noted as well, Chris, that you are master of all things Disney. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yeah, although it's not very popular right now to talk about that. So oh, we
1: I forgot. I forgot. We're supposed to be boycotting Disney. <laughs> I left, them, <laughs> I left the cat out of the bag. So, um, so Chris, I thought you might want to start out because you have told me before that really all of Dr. Bryant Wright's success at Johnson Ferry really had to do with your student ministry. Is that correct?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Man, you set me up like, I cannot believe that right there. Well, well, first of all, I was the, just to be clear, I was the middle school pastor for most of my time. Well, all of my time with Bryant, actually, it was the last few years that I served as student pastor. And so trust me when I say that, um. the the preschool pastor and the middle school pastor we're right down there at the very line at the bottom there but but he hey the not great thing about brian i I, I hear you keep calling him dr Bryant and he's the kind of guy that goes by Bryant yes and uh, that's the kind of pastor he was to work for and in all seriousness it was it was a privilege to serve all those years and and i counted a privilege to still be able to Stay in contact with you, Bryant, and um, I'm thankful you're jumping on today. It's going to be a lot of fun because I've I've gleaned a lot of the wisdom over the years from you, and uh, so to to be able to share some of that with our Georgia with our Georgia Baptist folks and others throughout the the country, they're going to listen. It's going to be a good mm-hmm. good time. So thank you.
1: Absolutely, thank well, you, guys. To, to both of you, welcome to our Georgia Baptist discipleship family, and I really am grateful that y'all are jumping in. And this is kind of a homecoming having both of you on together. So hope that y'all enjoyed as well. Now, I want to give a reminder to our audience right here because we have a jag of resources that we want to give away. So make sure that you leave a comment and share the link and you'll get double entry into today's drawing for a $50 gift card, uh, Bryant Wright's new book that's coming out called Succession. And you just may end up as a Chris Trent illusion in the next move conference. I don't know, but it's possible. <laughs> If you, if you comment and share what's going on. Okay, now, Brian, let's jump in um, with our first question. Because I've been, listen, I've been looking forward to this for months. You and I have been trying to ca- calculate our dates together. And, and you've served for over four decades. And people in Georgia, like when they talk about Brian Wright, they think of excellence. They, they think of long-term obedience. They think of leadership. So for leaders like myself who are still learning, as you look back, do you have some keys to success or maybe some rhythms that you found yourself in that helped you to be successful, not for a decade, but for that long haul?
3: Well, Scott, it's, a, it's really kind of a scary question because I feel like I've got so many years to go. And my biggest fear is to fall into sin along the way where all those years of serving the Lord just you know, it cast a cloud over it and really discount uh, what can happen. So I appreciate your encouragement. And I'm thankful the Lord has guided all these years. Um, I will say that uh, I was serving as a singles pastor at Second Baptist Houston, right out of seminary, and was just there two and a half years. But within a year's time, I felt burned out. It's kind of embarrassing to Hmm. say a one year deal and feeling burnout. But Uh, Got away for overnight with my wife, Ann, uh, read a book, uh, Freedom and Simplicity uh, by Richard Foster. He's actually a Quaker, uh, but you know, there's certain Christian books that come to us at a key time in our faith journey and a walking with Christ. And that one just really struck a nerve with me. I realized I wasn't having a Sabbath. I didn't know anything about fasting that he talks about in the book. Um, I was already tithing as he talks about discipline and money, but there were just some quiet time. And uh, that was really a turning point for me, because I realized if I was going to survive over the long haul, need to establish some healthy spiritual habits uh, that have to do with spiritual health.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'd
3: already been uh, consistent on quiet time and feel that's nothing more important than that time alone with God, because I do, I would try to tell our new staff at Johnson Ferry, from the custodians to the ministerial staff, and they come on board the biggest temptation in ministry is to start to confuse your ministry with your relationship with Jesus. And it's deadly because then you just become a a professional, a religious professional, and you know the right answers and the right things to say, but there's no spiritual power in your life. So I do believe that quiet time is essential, but also as I learned in that little getaway I had after a year in full-time ministry, a weekly Sabbath is a must. And ministers are probably the most sinful when it comes to ignoring a Weekly Sabbath, and it's hard to do, yeah, because we're doing the work of the Lord. There's a it's important work in people's lives. Uh, people wonder if you're going to be lazy, you certainly can't take it on Sunday, like uh, so many of our people do. Uh, so it's a discipline, and that really was a key turning point, I think, in establishing another healthy spiritual lifestyle habit. Uh, and Chris will tell you, it was really a priority for our ministerial staff to have a, another day during the week, uh, sometime that Monday through Friday, because even on Saturday, staff is getting ready or thinking uh, constantly about what's going to happen on Sunday and all the responsibilities they've got there. And so I feel like not only for me personally, but for our staff, uh, for our families, that weekly Sabbath was key. And then we also were blessed with a sabbatical policy at johnson ferry and for those in full-time ministry uh chris you'll get a kick out of this we in the early days of people taking sabbaticals beyond the senior pastor you know people kind of accept the senior pastor having a sabbatical but i remember one of our deacons asked me what in the world does a middle school minister need a sabbatical (laughs) and i said sir said well i don't i won't say his name but i said well there's nobody on this staff that needs a sabbatical more than a middle school. Can you imagine the drain of dealing with middle schoolers day in and day out and their parents concerns on top of that? And he kind of laughed about it. Uh, but it, it became something that really the business people in our type A congregation, they came to realize how vitally important that was to the long-term health of our staff and the longevity of our staff there John Square. So I think Those things are all important because you're able to keep a better priority with not only the Lord, but with your family when you have those disciplines in your lifestyle. And Chris, you might want to share about it from a staff person's perspective of the priority Hmm. of the Sabbath.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could definitely jump in and say one of the beautiful things about Bryant and honestly, Bryant, the the way you led our executive staff, um, we there was never any guilt tied to taking a vacation, taking our day off during the week. A matter of fact, I think if anything, there was an expectation that we do those things and do those things well in order to stay healthy. And I think, uh, you know, the thing that I can attest to as, you know, having been there, ended up being about 17 years almost. uh, But all those years, I was like, you know, 10 or 12 down the list in terms of seniority. There was a huge level of seniority on our staff. And I think that speaks to the fact that Yes. In order to maintain longevity like that on your staff, you've got to have a group of people that are healthy. Uh, and it, it's not just you're working at a big church so you can just stay there forever. I mean, there's got to be some health there spiritually and physically. And uh, and I always felt that support from the top down. So that's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, that's good. Hey, Brian, let me, let me ask you a quick question, because I've got a couple of buddies that have taken sabbaticals in the last year and it's the first time their church has ever given. Now they're in medium-sized churches around 400, 500, but I'm seeing a lot of the smaller churches, the pastor's saying, I wish I could, man, I need that. I'm struggling, I'm burned out, You know, two years pandemic, all that. But the church doesn't offer a sabbatical. Do you have any wisdom or maybe, what would you do if you're in that church of 150-ish and, and you feel like sabbatical would be the best thing in the world for you, but you don't really know how to go about working that out with the leadership structure in that small church.
3: Well, that's a great question, Scott. And I would begin by going to the leadership, whether it's the chairman of the deacons or chairman of the personnel committee, the key, and, and not just those that are by office, but those who are seen in the church as the really influential leaders. And just share your desire for that for the long term health uh, in ministry. And really, Scott, I think when you're a pastor of a small church, the sabbatical is more needed than any other size church. Mm. Because I pastored a small church. When you come in, you're the founding pastor meeting in the doctor's office with a few families, I mean, I know what it's like to pastor a <laughs> small church and you're doing everything. Uh, whereas when you get to be a pastor of a mega church, you've got all kinds of staff. that has got all kinds of specific responsibilities that carry on while you're not there. But when you're a small church pastor, you're doing everything. So the emotional drain to me is far greater in a lot of ways. Mm. And that's where the sabbatical is so important. I I realize culturally in a lot of small churches, it may be completely foreign and it may be uh, kind of a mindset within the congregation of not even understanding the need of that because people had not experienced it themselves or been in a church like that but for the long-term help not only of the pastor and the staff but also for the church it's just amazing the impact it can have and, and scott one quick thing in my first sabbatical i was most nervous about the first one because you know it wasn't something that was the norm and about the third saturday night away i was walking the floor uh in the bedroom we were in and staying with some friends in Houston, and Ann woke up and said, what are you doing? I About three in the morning, I said, well, I'm just scared to death. I mean, we're going to be away 10 weeks, and I'm not going to preach for 10 weeks. That's driving me crazy. And what's happen- What's going to happen to the church? All you know, just all kind of fears. Anyway, and she said, well, if you're going to act like that, let's go on home. I said, well, I don't know if I really want to go home <laughs> right now. But
1: <laughs> It wasn't bothering you that bad, was it?
3: <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but, Scott, here's what's cool. About the sixth through the eighth week of that 10-week sabbatical, On three consecutive Sundays with guest preachers, we had the most decisions for Christ and membership that we'd ever had in the history of the church. And, you know, a lot of pastors might say, oh, that makes me nervous. No, it may thrill me. I'd call back on Monday just to see how it went and and hearing these reports. And it was so good for the church to see that God was working even when the pastor wasn't there. So that that was a real, I think it was an affirmation God allowed us to have and kind of stepping out on faith and doing that.
2: Wow. Scott, let me jump in right there because I no. think having insight from the inside on this thing, Brian, I think that was part of the key to a successful succession. I don't want to get ahead, Scott. You may be asking some yeah, of those yeah. questions a little later, but I, we, I would agree. You have a pastor who understands that the church is not built on Brian Wright, but rather it's built on the Lord, and he celebrates those moments. When you handle, I think that's why Johnson Ferry, it feels like we've barely missed a beat. I mean, Johnson Ferry is still thriving, even in the midst of a pandemic. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that you had that mindset, right? I think that's incredibly important. Wow. And that really and the church, was, well, used to, the yeah, church was used
3: to prolong, the church was used to those prolonged periods of the pastor not being there. So uh, going through those times, Chris is exactly right. I think it had a huge impact on accepting the transition uh, to a new pastor, but there had already been long stretches where I wasn't there during those sabbatical times.
1: Wow. That is so good because it really goes back to what you said a little bit ago, how the temptation is for us to confuse our identity with our role as the pastor yeah, that's rather right. than who I am in Christ. Man, that is Amen. rich. Now, Chris, any other thoughts you would give just you know, because you, you had a different perspective, but you were there during these glory days when Johnson fair was running more people than some small towns in Georgia and any thoughts of success from that second chair perspective, anything else that you would share?
2: Yeah, I, I will say what helped me as a, as a staff member from, and really it was like the 18th chair, just to be clear. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not really. Uh, so, uh, really what was super helpful there though was there was never, uh, any confusion in my mind about what mattered most to our church and where mm. we were headed. The vision was clear. Uh, what mattered was clear. Uh, how we judged success was clear. Uh, our core values, uh, that Bryant may or may not have on any given staff meeting asked us to take a sheet of paper out and take a pop quiz on. <laughs> Uh oh I never failed, Brian, just for the record. Uh and towards the inmate hundreds every time. Uh but uh because if you failed, you had to go take a makeup test in the pastor's office. True story. Okay. Uh but that That is true. That is true. So it's really important to know
3: those core values.
2: But that said, they weren't just they weren't just on paper. Um and, and it's interesting, Brian. I've never had a chance to say this to you, but but it's wild how many of those core values still play out in my life today when it comes to importance you know like ministry with excellence is one of our yeah. was one of our huge core values and I carry that mindset over doing what I do with the George Baptist Mission board that's incredibly important to me now so it's more than a nice little thing on a piece of paper and so I think that helped a ton knowing what we existed for what what and ultimately it all pointed to the fact that we're trying to reach people for Jesus and make disciples. I mean, that ultimately was what all of those things existed for. So that, that was very helpful.
1: That's awesome. So there were things that that were expected that you needed to do, like be prepared, know those four main pillars. And then there were things you shouldn't do, you know, don't cross lines, you know, the the leadership structure, you don't support Alabama football. I mean,
2: there's just some things in life you don't do, right, Chris? (laughs) You're real funny there, Scott. Hilarious.
3: Hey Scott, right, I would I would like to say on that one of those core values of ministry with excellence. Uh, I came out of the business world, and I it was a burden to me. Why it was okay to constantly talk about excellence in the business world, but it was like you accepted second best effort or second best quality in church world, and so that was a big one to me. But I used to tell our folks in understanding that ministry with excellence that I hope at Johnson Ferry people are surprised at the level of excellence. And and because uh, you think about it, when people have a business that does things with excellence, it's greatly appreciated, greatly appreciated. Mm. And it's so unexpected a lot of times. And and we wanted to create a culture at Johnson Ferry with that. And then people said, well, oh, you're just making the church like a business. No, now listen carefully. This is important. Business is motivated by profit. And we are motivated to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus mm. Christ. What yeah. could be a higher motivation than that? So I think if you keep your motivation right, you're doing this for the glory of God, then all that makes sense. And then when people are pleasantly surprised, you say, well, to God be the glory. This is this is what we hope for God to be glorified in this process of really serving him with excellence.
1: Gosh, that is so good. Chris, I think you got our next question.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, Brian, I'd like to circle back for just a minute if we could, because one of the things that's interesting, you touched on this a moment ago, but I remember the day you hired me uh, sitting in your office, Wendy and I sitting in your office with, uh, you know, Bill was there and I believe maybe the chairman of the elder committee at that point or the elder team at that point uh, was there. But I remember specifically uh, sitting in your office and as I stood up, uh, you put your hand on my shoulder. And you said, Chris, now it's, it's been my experience that whenever we enter into a new ministry like this, and we have the opportunity to reach people for Christ, that there's going to be a huge target on your back. And you talked about that just a minute ago. The fact is there are going to be a lot of younger you know, younger ministry people watching this, including folks that are, have been seasoned and been doing it a little while. I wonder if you could drill down just a little bit more on, the importance of having guardrails in our life and the importance of maintaining that walk with christ are there any specific things that come to your mind based on your experience and and i wonder if you'd even pull the curtain back maybe just a little bit on you you are in your 60s now doing this and what what type of guardrails do you still have to work on and i don't want to get too personal but i think it'd be fascinating to hear that
3: well As you know, Chris, we did have some guardrails for uh, staff expectations. Um, Any ministry or time with the opposite sex. Uh, If you're going to counsel a woman as a man, be sure your assistant is in the office. Don't do it after hours. Uh, No riding in the car one-on-one or having a a meal one-on-one with the opposite sex. Uh, You know, in the money area, often people try to hand me a, offering on Sunday morning or the envelope. And I would just literally go like this and just say, would you mind just seeking out a deacon or somebody? I just, to me, even looked suspicious if somebody's handing you an envelope that they know has money in it, that kind of raises questions. So I just literally decided I wasn't going to have my hands on any money that was coming in to the Lord's work. I mean, sometimes people would leave an envelope on the pastor's desk to just stop in or that kind of thing, but I would just turn it into the business office. But I think we do have to make some decisions. And I, I, it's kind of called the Billy Graham rule, later the Mike Pence rule, that he got mocked unmercifully for it and also came across as sexist in that regard. But the fact is, when men and women are one on one, the sexual component is always there. Hmm. And it's incredibly naive to say that it's just the same of a man meeting with a man from a business perspective or ministry perspective versus a man meeting with a woman. And if people don't understand that, they really don't understand original sin. Now, not that sex was the original sin. I'm not saying that because the original sin was disobedience to God. They were already enjoying joint sex to the fullest in their marriage. That was not a problem. But it is a component that is really, we have to be on our guard. Mm, that's good. And especially as men, because we deal with lust on a daily basis. I mean, it doesn't stop. Hey, I will turn 70 this year. And I know people can't imagine 70-year-old men having lustful thoughts, but but I do. I mean, it's just a reality in our sin nature. And then you you get emotionally involved in a counseling situation or the intimacy of having a meal with somebody. It's a, it's a dangerous, dangerous place. Yes. And I think also our spouses, uh, you know, Ann was always included on, I mean, she's my pastor and certainly wanted her to know what I was doing, who I was meeting with. Um, I just think you can make some decisions like that. I know when I was serving as convention president, the elders uh, wanted to be sure that either Ann or one of the ministers were traveling with me during that time. Now, I'm not able to do that speaking in a different church every Sunday now, usually leaving for the airport on Saturday, flying back on Sunday. But uh, Ann went with me early on in that, in this new role with in relief. But she said after about six months, "This is unsustainable for me <laughs> every, every weekend." <laughs> but I, but still, even there, you know, I, I told our staff when you're on the road and other staff people on the road, maybe a mission trip, whatever, no going into one another's hotel room for any reason, for any reason. Just you know, you stay out of these situations, and then you you. We still can fall into sin, I realize, but at least it limits the opportunities to fall into sin. So I think those are guardrails, uh, Scott, I'm glad you asked, because uh, I know that's mocked a lot today, especially women and men and the sexist aspect that it appears to have. But there's just a spiritual naivety if you overlook the sinful sexual component in one-on-one encounters with men and women
1: gosh that is so good now let me give a let me give an outsider perspective on what i am seeing between you two men chris everything you do here in the office you have a direction you're headed you're focused and and you're you're full bore the whole time what i hear y'all interacting back and forth is that bryant set a tone as a leader for an organization that we had goals here's what you need to know and be able to say and represent But gave a a focus. And it's a scientific fact that people don't walk in straight lines unless they're focused on a goal. And true story, if you drop a person off in the middle of the desert and and ask them to find their way out, they're going to walk in circles because one leg is shorter than the other.
2: It's just the craziest thing to me, but I just want to say in that some people's bit. cases both legs are short, but go
0: ahead.
1: Yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so but yeah. but it's a it's a it's an actual thing. And man, I just wanted to say that because I think that's a great word for us as leader, for maybe some of our pastors watching leaders watching that we've got to give a direction, we've got to be headed in a direction. If we're wandering around, man, that opens the door and, and breaks down really those guardrails that um brian is talking about so okay brian let me, Scott, let me
3: yeah, uh, real quickly one other thing that is so important i think everybody needs to have a clear life purpose and when you have a clear life purpose then you know what to say no to because when you got a clear life purpose you know how you want to finish uh as i mentor young pastors i get them to write out their obituary and to write out what they want on their tombstone well you know when you know how you want to finish Then when those temptations come along and it seems nobody's seeing but God and you, uh, you realize, you know, I don't want to make this mistake. I don't want to go in that direction because I know what a bad ending that could wind up being. So I think a life purpose then guides you in in making decisions. That life purpose is transferable. In other words, my life purpose, Scott, has not changed from pastoring Johnson Ferry to now president of Sin Relief. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of keeping that life purpose focused on your relationship with Jesus. And in my case, being a faithful and fruitful witness for Christ day by day till the end of my life. So that just transfers right over to send relief. It, It doesn't have to change. And that's the reminder you talked about, Scott, pastors that are listening to this staff people, you just can't have your identity in your ministry. Because you got it backwards. And if that's the case, I urge you to repent right now when you're listening to this podcast. May you repent and turn from that kind of thinking and ask the Lord to give you strength to do what you can't do on your own. Mm. Putting your ministry and your identity in ministry before your relationship and your love for Jesus. But I promise you, if you're willing to repent and seek God's will on that, the Holy Spirit will give you the strength to establish that discipline.
1: Man, what a to pass the offering plate and give the invitation. Hey, um, so, Bryant, let me let me tap into some, some, some perspective here. Let's turn the page on, on that discussion okay. because I want some – what wisdom would you share um, on how to develop and sustain some team morale? One thing our team is seeing throughout the state, really nationwide, because we've got, we got people from all over the world and all over the nation and in Georgia that are watching this broadcast – but they're they're talking language that they're having a hard time keeping the morale if they have a staff, but but even the single pastor church keeping the morale of the of the leadership, the lay leadership going. So any wisdom on how to how to develop and, and sustain team morale, how to create that really that culture where people want to serve with you and be in that church, whether professionally or as a lay leader?
3: Well, church wide, people are drawn to clarity and the mission. And so I think. Whoever the leader is, has to keep continually communicating the mission. And as Chris talked about, our core values were really how we fleshed out the mission at John's Ferry. And the mission is clear on the Great Commission. Jesus made it easy for us. The Great Commission is very, very clear. So keeping that mission before the church constantly, I think, is a unifying force. You know, people talk about they don't want to do anything to disturb unity. Well, that's, the, that's backwards. If your primary concern is unity, you will never have a unified ministry or church. It will be all kind of special interests that you're concerned about meeting. But if your mission is clear, then people join together in the mission, even if they don't like one another. It it Mm -hmm. brings a sense of unity. Think about all those soldiers in World War II. They had a mission basically to free Europe from the tyranny of Adolf Hitler. And they were from Jersey, they were from farms in Alabama, they were from California surfers, but they didn't probably like each other that much, but they were unified on the mission. And some of those guys became the best of friends for life because of that. So the mission is what keeps us focused in the right direction and keeps the church going in the right direction. I I think that just, you can't overstate that, looking for that spirit in the local church.
1: That is so good, and I've discovered, Chris, and I don't know if you have any input here as well, that people remember a little of what you say, but a lot of how you make them feel. And that culture, uh, Bryant, that you're talking about, um, it's 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 one thing to have the sign on the side of the church that says you belong. Yeah but it's another one if they come inside and that doesn't match if they don't belong when they get inside. So gosh, that is so good. Any, any follow-up thought there, Chris, I don't want to leave you out on here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know what? Well, here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking what's occurring to me right now. It's, it's very possible after for me, the last 15 months of doing what I'm doing and traveling Georgia. And I know for Bryant as well as he has traveled now, uh, he, he has experienced smaller churches as well. And it's very, it's possible. It's probable that there's some folks watching this right now and say, well, it's easy for a couple of megachurch guys to sit here and talk about all yeah. these things and talk about vision and staff morale and all of these things. But what I've learned is um, it, I think all of these things apply regardless of you being in a church setting where there's multiple staff or even if you happen to be the only full-time staff on your church because... Lord vision applies regardless of the size of your church and if anything i think what it's going to help do is it's going to clarify direction whenever you are in those early stages um, when i wrote my book i actually uh, i'm actually re-editing it right now brian and i actually happen to just read right. a, a portion that talks about the fact that you know pastors they w- we, we sometimes look at these ch- pastors that are at really large churches and we think oh yeah well of course they've got assistance and budget and all of these things but I try to always keep it in the back of my mind that, Brian, like you said earlier, you started off in a doctor's office and you didn't have an yeah. assistant. You didn't have any, I mean, it was you, you know, and I
3: was a staff. Yeah. Yeah. You were the staff. And so, so
2: the principles though, it's not that your goal is to become a mega church, but your goal should be to reach as many people possible for Christ, whether you're a Absolutely. small church or a large church. And I think these things apply because we can all be better for the Lord. We can all, all all have a better vision and clarity for what we're about, you know, for the Lord. So I think all these things apply no matter what size church you're at, Just to be clear, uh,
3: yeah. And Scott, I, w- I know I'll keep uh, adding here. Forgive me, but I I think on the reaching people, we pastors, uh, and a lot of this is our desire to be a people pleaser. That's a constant temptation as a pastor. You you get pleasing the people before pleasing God. But the fact is, Jesus gave us a mission to reach with the gospel every people group on the face of the earth. And that begins in our families and our neighborhoods. So if the pastor is not developing relationships with non-Christians in the community where you're planted, and I'm talking about going to lunch, I'm not just talking about, hey, how you doing when you see them at a high school football game, or something, but I'm talking about building long-term relationships with people who aren't believers. How are you gonna have a chance to reach people for Christ? Because the chances in our more secularized culture, even in a small town in Georgia, of them showing up in your church are very slim. So we've gotta be very intentional. So one thing that was important to me in the early days, it was Monday night was sacred for visiting prospects. And then as the boys, as my three sons began to get in very demanding, you know, school schedules and elementary school and all I realized for their keeping the family priority, I had to shift that to Friday lunch. And so Friday lunch was reserved for prospects or non-believers and What happens is the sheep will take 24 7 of your time. Uh, There's just always a need with the sheep. And that's part of us, our calling as a shepherd. But we've got to be intentional and remember the mission Jesus gave us. And you can only be effective and fruitful if you've got some kind of contact and relationships with non believers. And then outside your church field, you know, I remember as president of the convention, I was asked back to my Uh, grandfather who's been in heaven for many years he died when I was 16 but I was asked back to his last full-time pastorate in Bainbridge Georgia and we went out to eat I got to preach on Sunday night there such a thrill the church my granddaddy had pastored and went to dinner at the Burger King close by uh, in that community after Sunday night church and I just said what's the best thing happening here he said Let me tell you, we took three people on a mission trip and we got to visit in a Muslim village. And I think they led two or three people to Christ. And he was so excited. I thought, this is fantastic. Small church, just two or three people, but carrying out that great commission and what it was doing to that pastor and the impact it was having on that church. So it's not just your local community. I think we need to go out beyond our local community because Jesus says it's both local and global. But once again, Scott, that's coming back to the mission and staying focused on the mission. And then the spiritual vitality uh, is maintained in the process.
1: What a great example of mission clarity. And, and let me, so let's take this one step further, because I do want to get to this. There is a dry well when it comes to uh, ministers. I mentioned earlier that we had four or yeah. five oh, yeah. churches in Georgia that, that don't have a pastor right now. And we are... We are seeing that, that there is just, there are not many young people surrendering to ministry. Do you have any thoughts of why that is? So, you know, when I think back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there, it seemed to be like, you know, I knew people all around me that were, being, that were surrendering to ministry, that were chasing a call to ministry and fleshing that out. And I hear a lot of people talking now where they look around and they don't see anybody surrendering to ministry. Do you have any thoughts here?
3: Uh, Scott, I appreciate you asking that because it's very convicting. I think one thing that I was weak on as a pastor was urging people to pray uh, to discern if God was calling them into full time ministry. I, I just think that was a weakness on my part. Now, I think I think because the mission trip experiences took off in Johnson Ferry, the Holy Spirit used those experiences to where many people began to be called into full time ministry because. God does something special on those mission trips. I mean, I, I know it's just a short term thing, but God does something special when people mm-hmm. get out of their comfort zone and see they can be used by the Lord in a great way. But I do think it was a weakness. I should have extended the invitation more for people to consider the call to full time ministry. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I have talked about that, Scott, and we feel that, you know, especially in her childhood, in her childhood churches, she felt the pastors were often calling for people to go into missions or that kind of thing. So it was put before the congregation, perhaps more. And so that's, that's something I, I should have done better as a local church pastor.
1: Gosh, that's good. Now, Chris, you've got an initiative here that you have yeah up well, in yeah. gen. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Matter of fact, that, that's a great word that, that, Brian, that you have attached this experience with a mission trip with that call to ministry. Gosh, that's really good. Any thoughts, Chris?
2: yeah a couple thoughts one is i would probably uh you and i i know we, we love each other so i could i could come at your question and, and take issue with it just a little bit uh, go, I, ahead, I, I, man, I, go ahead man go ahead i'm 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 talking to scott though i wouldn't disagree with you brian he's still scared <laughs> uh, you live right down the road from me man i ain't saying nothing okay so uh uh i know i could though just to be clear uh No, I would, I would say, I don't think it's so much that kids aren't responding to the call as, and I I know you well enough, Scott, to know that I, that that you feel this way. It's that we've not all, we've not in, in the last maybe 15, 20 years, we've not done a great job as churches extending the call and providing a way, a pathway, a pipeline, if you will, for kids that are called. Because what we're actually seeing is when you have guys like Shane Pruitt, who works with Bryant, as he's traveling the nation, anytime he gives an invitation right now for kids to respond to a call into ministry, scores of kids are coming down. Hmm. Kids are, in fact, responding. So the question I think that is before the church, including all of the folks listening, I would plead with everybody listening that you ask the question, what is in place at your church, whether you're a small church, big church, medium-sized church, what is in place at your church for that student that feels that call into ministry, what exists for you to help them get from eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade to that moment they take their first ministry. And I would say this, Mm -hmm. because here's the challenge that we as grownups need to remember about this next gen when you say, let's say it's a 10th grader that makes that decision to go into ministry. If you go from that point and you draw a timeline to the moment they set foot in ministry. Well, when I was growing up in the eighties, you know, it, my, my youth pastor stepped in and helped me figure out the steps to get to that, but there weren't near as many. There were some potential derailing moments, but there weren't near as many. But I would say now in the current generation that we live in, there are an incredible number of opportunities for students to get derailed from a calling that they feel on a mission trip or a camp or wherever that might be when they're in the 10th grade, because there are so many options for young people today when it comes to career and how to make money and all of those things. So I think what would be important would be to say, what are we doing in the local church to help those students that feel called? Uh, And what we're trying to do just to model that is we, Every big event that we do when we extend that call uh, is we do a follow-up one-year process where we take students that feel called to ministry through a Monday night, the first Monday night of each month. Um, I've still got my group from last summer, a group of, group of teenagers from all over the state of Georgia. We get together once a month, but we require them to have a ministry mentor. And it's just a process. It's not where it needs to be just yet. We're still figuring things out, but it, the key is that we've got something in place and I think that would be incredibly important for everybody. So
1: that's good. And that, that was and my I,
2: biggest rant of the entire interview. I'll, I won't get that tested, but you got me a little, That I get a little snarky with that conversation. Oh, you're getting
1: all cool. spicy on me, Chris. <laughs> you're just jumping in there, bro. No, that's good. And, and really what it does, it requires us to think a little bit differently uh, instead of settling in and, and being too comfortable, but to consider what's going on around us, which really, and, we, and we're, we're losing time here. We're running out of time. So let me be quick about these next couple here, because I do want to hit them i uh, just get some quick thoughts here because I have a, I have a, just a wonder in, in my heart, Brian. I'm wondering if the pathway to success is changing or has changed. And, and let me just tell you what I mean by that. When I was a young minister, I've been in ministry 33 years now. When I started, if you had a great worship service and and you could get 40% of your people in Sunday school, that was a success, and we were seeing people saved and there seemed to be good unity in the church. And, and that's man, that's just where it was. But the past 40 to 50 years of my life have shown now that, that we're not making disciples. We're losing ground. We're losing the battle for the souls of our little boys and our girls and our, our women and our men. just any thoughts here, Brian, as you are now from this global perspective and you're traveling all over the nation, any thoughts about is is the pathway to success changing for leaders that they need to be aware of or be thinking?
3: Well, the pathway to success, I don't think is changing in regards to just the basics of growing in Christ and following Jesus. I, I think that's that's still going to be the same. But I do think you've really hit on something, and I, I think J.D. Greer really hits on it in his book "Gaining through Losing." but he was serving in a Muslim nation um, in missions before he was in the pastorate. He said if he had a problem, he would have never thought of going to a mosque to get help. It just wouldn't have even crossed his mind to go down and see the local imam to get some spiritual counsel.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, think about where today's culture is. It is such a secular culture, even in the smallest South Georgia town, that there are tons of people in your town. They're not going to give a second thought to reaching out to a pastor, a church, or going to Sunday school to find some answers when they're going through a tough patch in life. So once again, I think that's where we have to get outside the church and build those relationships with non-believers because they're just not going to think to show up. It's such a secular culture. The Judeo-Christian ethic is the dominant ethic is gone with the wind because now the politically correct ideology is the dominant value system ethic in America today. And so we've just got to recognize where it is and do what Jesus did and go out and mix with the people and meet those needs. And and the thing I'm so excited about Sin Relief, you're talking about hurting people one way or another, where there's refugees right now, the Ukrainian refugees that we're heavily involved in ministry in in Eastern Europe, or whether it's a disaster that comes up a storm. I mean, people that are hurting are open to talking about spiritual things. They're open to talking about how God could possibly help them in their life. And that gives us a chance the share of the gospel. So it's different in that regard. And one of the things, Scott, I think that's such a huge challenge is this phone here, the cell phone that makes all kind of decadence, whether it's porn, whether it's excessive violence, whether it's crazy ideologies, it's accessible to a young child and through the teenage years and it is having a devastating spiritual impact on the local church. I mean, a pandemic of porn among teenage boys and men in the local church. So that that also is a spiritual warfare battle that the church is going to have to continually address and not trying to heap guilt on people who they already feel enough shame. And certainly it is sin and you want to call it what it is. But there needs to be some roadmaps as to how to find victory in Christ over these things that are so it's like the tentacles of the devil are just jumping out of that cell phone. It used to be computer. Now it's really the phone that is constantly pulling at all. It pulls at all of us as ministers. I mean, stuff shows up on our phone. Yeah. That just, my goodness, I didn't want that to to appear on Twitter or uh, something that's just there when I pick up the phone. So anyway, it's just a constant challenge that we're having to deal with. And I think the church is going to have to figure out, how to address that in a way that is life-changing and life-saving through the gospel of Christ.
1: Gosh, so good. Now, let's land the drone here for a second. I got a question okay, for you. Okay, I, I get too long of answers on No, <laughs> no, that's perfect. That is exactly why we we have you on here, Bright, because that is a nugget of wisdom. Because, I mean, the reality is we all carry around a supercomputer in our palm of our hand. That's right, absolutely. And everywhere we go, there's almost nothing yeah, we can't absolutely. do or access, yeah. which brings... Incredible responsibility, as well as some limited benefits. But, um, but I, do, I do have a question that I want to land the drone, like I said, here with both of you guys. <laughs> Chris, we'll start with you first, because uh, Bryant talked about having um, a purpose in life, a life purpose that is stated, where you're headed. And we all want to have some sizable impact in our lifetime. We want to leave it better than we found it, right? So if you could carve your own epitaph, what would it be, Chris Trent?
2: You mean like my tombstone? Is that, is mm-hmm. that
1: the, Yeah, that's a big there
2: old word. I it, never Chris. used that in a sermon epitaph. <laughs> I don't even know if I can say that word. I think they make medicine <laughs> for it now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, um, family always comes to mind in these moments, but I, but, but my walk with Christ as well, I think loved Jesus, loved his family. Mm. You know, uh, And it just that, that it's clear that I, that I lived my life for the Lord tried my best to live my life for the Lord and that, at the end of the day, my family was more important than anything else that I may have accomplished or been a part of, uh, and so uh, yeah, love love Jesus, Jesus love, love, love family, good yep.
1: good stuff, Bryant.
3: You know, I, I that's a hard one for me because I, as you can tell already, I tend to give too long answers. But I would, what I put on the tombstone is a faithful minister of the gospel who followed Jesus. Uh. that's just. Uh, because there has been a real sense of calling that may put too much focus on uh the full-time vocational ministry aspect of life but there is a unique calling we have I want to change can my be answer faithful to that calling
2: I want to change my <laughs> answer that. I'm
3: just <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's that's kind of what's on my heart There might be too much etching into the tombstone but uh that's on my heart there
1: uh so good, all right, Brian hey we want to do one more thing before we leave because you have you and I were talking about the the new book you have coming out that I'm super excited to read because it is in need with all of the churches that are open with this boomer generation that's uh, landing the plane and will be retiring soon you've got a new book called Succession. Can you tell us quickly just uh, why you wrote that and then maybe um, I guess probably where people can find that?
3: Well, I finished uh, at Johnson Ferry in December of 2019 and started uh, as the first president of Sin Relief in March of 2020, the first week COVID hit. And in that three-month period of retirement, (laughs) before I got back into full-time ministry, uh, I just was passionate about writing our experience uh, as kind of a testimonial book of the six-year process we went through. And transitioning from me as the pastor of Johnson Ferry to Clay Smith, who's doing a great job there now, because I feel like Scott that uh, there's a tidal wave of boomer pastors that's going to be retiring over the next ten years. It's already happening, and churches, pastors, and successors, potential successors, are going to be looking at all kind of questions: How can that be a positive experience in the life of the church? And you know, the stats are the worst. When a guy follows a long tenured founding pastor, that's the worst chance for success. So it was a a burden for me that somehow at Johnson Perry, we could, you know, break that pattern, beat those odds to have a successful transition and very thankful how God led in that. So it's really kind of a testimonial. I hope it'll be a help to a lot of churches that are used to mention 500 churches in Georgia looking for a pastor. Man, that's Unreal. a that's a disturbing stat to hear. No. The need is so great in that regard.
1: Well, thank you for writing the book. I look forward to um, reading that. And we're going to make sure that our people see that because I want to try to get that into the hands of our leaders. And for one of you who comments today and shares a broadcast, we're going to be giving that book away. So make sure again that you comment and you share this broadcast. Now, friends, let me me, uh, close things out here. Um, Everyone listening wants to be a disciple of Jesus that makes a gospel difference. And I hope you'll take to heart what you just heard from Chris and Bryant, because it has just been incredible. And remember this thought when, because it's really what I think of when I think of these two men of God. When the tide rises, the boats in the bay rise with it. And the whole world is looking for someone to lead. So you can either be the one who raises the bar or you can sit back and watch and be crushed by the bar. So my prayer for you is that you will lead well. And if you need help, that is why we're here. Georgia Baptist Discipleship, if you're in Georgia, we we exist to serve you, the leader, and to serve the local church. Right, right. Chris Trent, thank you so much for being awesome and being on our broadcast today. Real privilege.
3: Thank you so much, Scott. And I'm glad to be here with Chris. He's a mighty good one.
1: He is a good one. He he is. Thanks, uh,
2: I always a, felt that encouragement. I still do. Yeah. So thank you for that. Oh.
1: Yep. He didn't get that kind of encouragement on our team, but we're working. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Well, well y'all, y'all better see the light there. I hear you. Lennon <laughs> Melton, John Graham, thanks for producing. And I want to say a thank you to our listeners, because uh, for those of you who are giving to the cooperative program, that is the, the reason we're able to do this uh, broadcast. So thank you for giving generously. And I pray that today's discussion with Bryant Wright and Chris Trent will equip and inspire you to go and make world-impacting disciples.
0: Thanks for listening. We want to continue the conversation from today's broadcast in a learning community near you. These learning communities are designed to celebrate your biggest wins, resource your greatest need, and help you finish well. We also want to give you a free gift, the five discipleship shifts most churches need to make to produce world-impacting disciple makers. You can download this resource by going to ministryboom.com. This five-page PDF is a discipleship alignment checklist. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board is able to provide resources like this because of gifts from Georgia Baptists to the cooperative program. For more information on this broadcast and a customized discipleship plan for your church, visit gabaptist.org discipleship. Engage with us on your time through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. Lastly, if you've benefited from this conversation today, please share this with a friend as we seek to help churches make world-impacting disciple makers.